Welcome to the Frontline Industry Podcast. Every week, we talk with top senior executives to get their advice on positively impacting frontline employees, companies, and customers. On today's episode, Keeping It Gritty, I talked to Jeff Engel, CEO of Location Tech Inc., a software platform providing precise locations three-dimensionally inside and around buildings to track people, processes, devices, and equipment. Jeff talks of his Navy SEAL days and the lessons learned, some stories never before told in the civilian world. He shares his driven approach to life, his passion for identifying and partnering with overachievers, and much more. Don't go anywhere. The Frontline Industry Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the Frontline Industry Podcast. My name is Joel, and today we have Jeff Engel joining us. Jeff is an accomplished and visionary global business leader. He has driven business results through strategy and committed teams and unwavering focus on customers. He's led multiple cross-functional teams from 10 to over 6,000 members that operate simultaneously around the world. He's got an incredible backstory. If you look at his LinkedIn, it'll say CXO, tech, CPG, Navy SEAL veteran, global experience, and uh, we're going to hear about all or most of that today, I'm sure. But first, Jeff, welcome to the Frontline Industry Podcast. Thanks, Joel. It's, uh, it's fun to be here. It's fun to have you here. And let's start with that background. I mean, you're no ordinary you know, executive that we've maybe had before. And if you don't have a, an ordinary structure of your life that's led you to now, you've been involved in some really incredible things throughout your, your time on this planet. And uh, I'd love for you just to kind of fill us in on some of those things. Again, CXO, tech, CPG, Navy SEAL veteran, global experience, and you say, keeping it gritty on your LinkedIn profile. Tell us all about that. Um, while some will say that I've, I've achieved great things or accomplished great things, that does not make me any better than anyone else, for starters. Hmm. Like we talk about business and all that stuff. It really started with my parents when I was a kid. I swam as a kid. I was seven. I was six started swimming. I was six years old and didn't really like it because it was like, it was work. And, uh, and I ride my bike home. And as a kid, you ride home with this bad part. I should talk about this. I ride my bike home, wet sandals, bathing suit, slip off the, slip off the, uh, the pedals, groin hits the top bar, you fall over and you're like, Oh, that hurts. You look around, you want to start crying, and they realize there's no one there to give you attention. So you're like, ah, oh, better get back on my bike. And so that's kind of where I started learning the grittiness is like, if no one really cares. And so I'd come home, and I'd say to my mom one time, I was like, I don't want to swim anymore. She's like, no problem. You have a choice. Either go to summer school or swimming. And I was like, and I literally did the math. I go, what, what was less painful? I go, swim practice at time was an hour. And I hung out at the pool afterwards because hanging out at the pool is fun. So, but an hour of swimming versus 45 minutes of going to, going to class, 45 or 50 minutes in class and 40 minutes back, I was like, well, and then, and then time to transfer to the pool. I was like, well, it's more painful to go to school than it is to swim. So I'm, I'm doing what's less painful. I'll keep swimming. And, and so my life's always been kind of like, what's less painful? I'm going to do that. And so my parents always kind of like, not intentionally kept saying, you have to do something. Here's your alternative. And luckily they did that. And I started swimming and I was good enough that it, that it got me into college, um, helped me get through college. And literally I picked the Navy because I swam water. It's gotta be two and two together. So don't go, don't go air force. Cause there's not water there and don't go army cause there's land. So <laughs> go to the, literally that's how I selected the Navy. I was in the Navy for nine years, then um, worked for IBM uh, supply chain, supply chain person, great experience. 
Uh, I work for a gentleman by the name of Gene Richter, who was the uh, the god of supply chain. He had won the top award at HP and Ford, and then came to IBM and won it there. So he was still he passed away uh, a while ago, but he's still legendary. Um, then did a couple startups in the software space, and then had my own company. And then did a consumer engagement company, where um, that's where I had multiple business units around the world. Um, Korea, South Africa, South Africa, Panama, Japan, um, did work in Malaysia, business in, in the U.S. And, about, and that's where I had 6,500 people working for me in different business units. And that was where I learned to run multiple business units and really kind of got my, my chops down to doing startups, which then led to what I'm doing now, which is my current company. So with your, let's back up again. I appreciate the, the kind of the overview there with your, your story of, of service and the Navy and just the the nine years, I think you said, uh, of that experience. Can you share some of the lessons learned that you've pulled from that now into your work life in, if you would, if you would, you know, corporate America or in the professional world? In a lot of ways, there's a ton of correlations. In others, I think it's hard to articulate what it is. Um, a couple of takeaways: the tougher it got, the funnier the humor was, which says something about the people I was with. And then a couple of key moments happened to me where your team is the most, your team is it. Without your team, you're nothing. And as a leader, you need to support your team. You also need to make sure that if your team's not doing right, you help them understand why they're not doing right and how you get better. So in the Navy, we didn't always get it right, but we always learned, always learned. And, and being in spec war, being a SEAL, it was a different level that that quite frankly wasn't seen anywhere else. Um, and so there were events that that I did when I was in the Navy that quite frankly, anyone else would have said, you made the absolute right call and not doing it. It was a no-go criteria. And but in spec war, your no-go criteria is much, much higher risk. And so there's things that you just put yourself through that others would say, oh, I've never touched that. Never do that. But in SEALs, you do things that others won't do. And that's kind of goes back to the humor got humor gets funnier because you're doing things that just most people shouldn't do. Um, but but learning how to balance that has has helped me be better in this better in the civilian sector. But it's also helped me push much harder. What was and I don't know I'm maybe catching you off guard here, but what was one of the tougher lessons you had to learn in that environment that you now kind of have resonating perhaps in your mind as you approach your professional career? I think it's really about reflecting on decisions that, that I made 20 years ago. Like, did I really make the right decision? And by the way, it's not a rumination. It's literally just keep cycling through the, the situation and learning from that situation. And so, and did I make the right call? And, and could there's things I could have done better? So by the way, I had great mentors um, from Joe Herger um, to now Admiral McRaven, who was my boss when he was just a commander, but no one knew of him. Admiral Harwood. There was an event where, if you read one of Admiral McRaven's books, he talks about sinking a boat. And by the way, this is the first time the story's ever been told publicly outside of Spec War. He, he sank a third, the, the boat he was on sank, it was a 30 foot boat, and he sank it. I, I was on a 12 foot, we had two 12 foot zodiacs um, coming in, and we were supposed to cross the beach, do a beach landing. And it was that night, and the surf was 12 to 15 feet. And we had criteria that said, we're not going if it's over a certain height. 
Um, and this was a pretty big event. This was a, a, a readiness exam. Admiral McRaven, at the time, Commander McRaven was on the beach. And I sent my swimmer scouts in. What you do is you send them in, they look at it, do a recon of the, of the area, and then come back out and say it's safe to bring the boats in. They came back and... Um, and first, one was a lieutenant, an officer. Another one was um, mid-grade enlisted guy. The officer came back, and and uh, and I said, "Hey, can can we go?" And he goes, "No way." And my first reaction is, "Oh gosh, that's not the answer. Like we have to go. Like we have to go." My my boss is on the beach, and he's expecting me to go. And this is our final final thing before we go on deployment. Like this is the check in the box. Like how do you justify them deploying you if you don't complete the, complete the op? So that was my first reaction. And my next reaction was I looked over at a gentleman and I said, Hey, Chris, can we go? He goes, no way. I made the call that was that at the time, um, not the call I wanted to make, but it was the call that um, in hindsight proved that it was the right call. Um, but I, so I, I waved off. McRaven had a conversation with me, by the way, which he should have. He absolutely could not. He had to have the conversation. He was like, hey, why didn't you go? You have to push yourself. Absolute right conversation. Even though we passed the no-go criteria, he needed to have that conversation with me to say, you should have figured it out. He had to keep pushing us. There were some other events that went on. But then um, Admiral McRaven at the time hopped in a boat. And this is in one of his books uh, three months later where he was with, um, there was a group of people in these 30-foot ribs. He ended up going through during the daylight, going similar conditions, and the environment, the boat sank. It didn't make it through the surf zone on a more capable boat. And so someone came back to me and said, well, don't you feel vindicated? I was like, no, what are you talking about? Well, McCraven sank a boat. Well, well, okay, but that's not, that's not the issue. The point is we took it back a step low from, from night to day, and then we pushed the limits to see if it would work, and it didn't work. So what we proved is we needed to do something different. It simply didn't work. And so I, I think some people said, well, hey, you know, some people should have gotten in trouble. And, and sure, it was a big investigation done. But what McRaven and the others on the, on the boat there learned is that we, have to, we had to do something different. And, there, and because of that, some jet skis were brought in, other technology was brought in. The, the way the boats were designed needed to be changed because the reason why it failed was because one of the because one of the motors stalled in the process. So it, you could say, "Hey, it was wrong," but we moved, and this was in the late '90s. We moved so far technology and 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 process wise because we pushed the limits, and quite frankly, we pushed the limits harder than we would have in the regular Navy. Um, and that's what and that's what led to the success in the 2000s was because everyone. Don't always get it right, but you got to keep getting better. So, so is that the lesson then professionally then is, is kind of listen to your people and you don't always get it right, but you have to keep on trying or what, what, how do you tie that back in then to the, the, the professional yeah, side? So, so because I asked my guys the question um, and they came back and I briefed it, briefed the plan and they followed the plan and came back. What am I going to do? Like, I don't, I don't value your opinion. Like, so if I'd said, well, we're going anyway, then I would have said, well, for the other 14, 15 guys that were with me that I really don't value what you're doing. So you can't do that. And, and then what McRaven and the other leadership did is he didn't get in the boat and go through this, hey, what do you think? He said, hey, let's go. Um, but what he didn't do is he didn't ask for everyone's opinion, like, hey, what do we do, et cetera. 
he made the call, the, the team, the leadership made the call on their own, as opposed to where I asked the guys because we briefed a big brief, we did all this thing. So if you ask your team for their opinion, you kind of need to go with it, or you need to explain why you're changing it. And if you do a deep plan, et cetera, where McRaven kind of addressed it a different way. And so I think it's, there's so many dynamics going in there. So I um, hope that answers the question. Yeah. I mean, so what, what lessons of leadership then, if you were to distill them down into maybe a nugget um, or two, have you pulled then uh, from your professional into your professional life? I learned this in, in this, in the seals. And then, and then again, at IBM, um, there's a lot of overachievers that are underestimated a lot. So when we needed to hire people, I went to kind of went to areas where people were being let go. And I kind of, and that's where I started really finding out, you find overachievers there that people just kind of let them go for some reason or another. And that kind of turned the tide for us at IBM is because a couple hires, they kind of showed the way the others kind of like, Oh, this isn't so bad. So the, the new, the new blood helped the old, helped the, the really good people get better. Um, and so really it's, you, you need to get overachievers that are, that are underestimated around you for one. You need to figure out you can't trust everyone. So you've got to find your, you, you've got to get people on the team that are the right people on the team. You also need to show them that you're going to go the distance for them because if you're not going to go the distance for them, why should they do it for you? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, like it, it starts with the leadership. So what do you think most or some executives get wrong then or leaders get wrong when it comes to inspiring others to follow them? Because I mean, you've, you've led in military operations, you've led in, uh, distributed teams. You've led in a whole host of different situations. You know, there's there's some pretty bad leaders out there. What do you think they get wrong about these these things? It's easy. It's not about them. What what would, what would you tell them? It is about them. You said that's the team. It's about the people. It was always about the team. And like my team now, from they're all for, we're we're in the wireless IoT space, but they're they're from Qualcomm. Really small, really nimble team. And they're probably were as a team were a third to a fourth the size of other teams, but that actually the larger team actually creates inefficiencies, a lot of inefficiencies, and that's and those are some of the early lessons that McRaven taught me. So, uh, so I've noticed that. So I've I got friends who are you know currently or or ex military, and what I've seen time and time again from them is their belief and knowledge and wisdom around the fact that a high-performing small team can do so much more than a large team that has those inefficiencies baked into it. And I think there's a lot of pressure to build out bigger and bigger teams. So just, you know, fill the slots or fill the gaps without putting that thought into, do we really need this many or, or we can't trust them all to give their all. So we're going to assume that we're going to build the team to be 40% bigger than it really needs to be. So we can hedge that a bit. But in reality, you know, when you're in the military, from what I've seen, it's not someone who hasn't been there, but, you know, it's everyone giving 100%. Everyone's giving their all because it's, it's for the guy next to them. And you really can't have anyone who's performing below. I think the civilian world makes it a little bit more difficult. Like, if you look at your resume, how many people have you left? What's your P&L? And so let's say you have a, a good P&L, but you've only led two people. Like, wow, you can't manage, you can't manage a thousand people. When I was a supply chain guy, and and um the difference between a big and a small company is just the number of zeros. Hmm. Is it is it one and a half billion or is it 1.5 million? Same, same tactics are solved, same tools are applied, just more zeros. And so, like, wow, you just 
it's just 10% of 1.5 million versus 10% of 1.5 billion. Big difference in number, but it's still the same percentage. And so the rules apply. And so it's a little bit the way we've been organized in business world is it's my fiefdom and you're going to be promoted on your fiefdom. And so for anyone in the military, my recommendation is learn finance. You have to know finance because military is very good at spending money because they're given a budget and they need to maximize, they need to maximize what they're given for, 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 for a budget in corporate America. You've got to max, you got to optimize your revenue. And so then you, so you have different leverage you're pulling. And so for anyone getting leave the military, I'd say you have to learn finance. You have to learn this other set of levers to pull to grow revenue. You have to learn sales and marketing. And, and by the way, you're doing that already in the military. You're already like, you have to go sell your op. You have to go do all yeah. this stuff. It's like, it, it, but it's really around how do, you, how do you grow your revenue? And that's something that's, that you have to understand your, your finances. Have to. I see a lot of folks who come out of the military, they, they, they do go into finance. So they do go into supply chain and operations and things like that. And it, it makes total sense what you're saying with a, with a tie-in between you know, either they know they should go do that or they already have those skill sets and their natural shoe in there. With your military background then, how has that impacted or motivated you professionally? You know, what do you carry with you every day that perhaps someone who doesn't come from the military, uh, maybe they don't have that same thing within them? I probably carry too much of a burden, quite frankly, Hmm. because I, I was given a great privilege early on. Um, I was given the privilege to go to the Naval Academy, which means it's tuition-free. I was given the privilege to go through the SEAL community. Average person going through SEAL training, less than 30% chance of making it through. If you have a good childhood, you're single digits of making it through. Like, like your, your chance of making it through is like slim to none. Why is that? Because you haven't had adversity. Hmm. You haven't been riding your bike as a little kid slipping off and hitting the top tube and falling over because you hurt. Like, and, and one thing that, that I did early on is because I, I knew swimming was going to get me into college, but the, to get to the team I needed to go to was 20 miles away. And my mom couldn't take me to swim practice. So I literally would hop on my bike, ride my bike, 20 miles swim practice, swim for two and a half hours, wow. and then ride my bike back. And I remember people saying, well, how do you do that? I'm like, well, you leave a half hour earlier. To me, it was a, it was a time problem because if it took 45 minutes to drive there and it takes an hour and 15 minutes to ride your bike there, then leave half hour earlier. And, and by the way, I did hear him say, well, how do you do it physically? What do you do when you're tired? Well, I was like, well, leave 45 minutes earlier. Like I, it never resonated with me. It was a time problem. Mm-hmm. And so, and this was before triathlons are being done. So it, it, people thought I was a little nutty that I was doing that, but I was like, I want to go to college and swimming was going to get me into college. So it's kind of what I saw I needed to do. And I did, even though I didn't really enjoy swimming, I was like, when you're given a talent, like I had, you have to try and maximize it. I was given a gift of being a competitive swimmer and, and early on being ranked nationally, which got me in, which gave me an opportunity to the Naval Academy, which then gave me an opportunity to be in the student community. Um, and I almost didn't go seals, but I knew, but um, because of some fears and I turned around, I said, I can't, I have to go because I'll live regrets. And so in some respects, I think it goes back to this burden that I feel like I've had so many opportunities in front of me that I, I need to 
we need to keep serving. And, and again, overused term, but it's if I can help overachievers excel or we have a shot, then then I feel like I've I've been rewarded personally. When you carry a burden around like that, it's kind of ever present. You know, you go to bed with it, you wake up with it. It's it's it influences and impacts all the decisions we make in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think it's about am I am I doing am I doing the right things? Am I doing enough? And am I am I um, fighting the right fight? And uh, am I grounded in um, what's right? I, I had it. So Mark Crampton was my chief um, at SEAL Team Three. And by the way, uh, I just he committed suicide about. 12 weeks ago. So hmm. the numbers are somewhere around 22 veterans commit suicide every day. Like he was the epitome of, of a steal, like just and did multiple deployments. I mean, wonderful guy. But I remember one time when McRaven is like, go back earlier, rightfully give me an earful uh, when I was standing at attention and Mark was there with me, stand by side, and McRaven was giving us uh, kind of like, hey, you guys knew better. And again, like he should have. And Mark's standing there at attention, and he's clicking his pen away. Not realizing he's clicking his pen. And McRaven goes, hey, sounds like you have something you want to say, Chief. And uh, and Chief and Chief Crampton goes, oh, well, sir, it kind of is in a slow southern draw, which, I mean, really smart man. And he goes, I, I do. And he goes, um, I wasn't there. I wasn't there on the op, but if my boys made the decision, I know they made the right decision. I trust my, I trust my guys. And, and early on that just showed me, even when you're going to take the flames, you still stand up for what you're going to be right. And, and by the way, McRaven respected that. He came to me the next day and he chuckled and he goes, uh, your chief stood up for you. And by the way, I have a lot of respect for that. What happened? And, and we, we all knew that that's what between Mayor Craven and I, we, we knew that's what needed to happen. And Mark Crampton didn't have to stand up to me. What he could have done was what most people do is when you walk out of the room, you stand there, walk out of the room and you say, Oh, sir. Yeah. He didn't treat you right. You should do better. No, Mark just stood up there in the front and just said his piece and then moved on. He was very good at that. Very good. So as an overachiever who likes to help overachievers, how do you, avoid falling into the trap of viewing your personal worth or value as a person based on the things that you do, right? Like, you know, if you fail at something, you struggle with something, I suck. I'm terrible. I'm a loser. I'm not worth anything versus, or, or, or I'm doing great. That means I am a good person. That means I am great myself. Like we can't always tie and we shouldn't always tie our worth or value to our performance. And yet for those, and I, and I feel to a different degree, perhaps uh, a, a similar need to perform, um, in different ways, you know, I, I can fall prey to that myself. Yeah. I think, I don't think anyone wants to fail in life. Um, everyone wants to be successful or wants to try and achieve their best. And I, I don't mean to keep coming back to seals, but I remember during hell week, it was the third, it was like the Thursday night and we were in the demo pits and it's miserable at this point. Cause you've been You've been awake, started Sunday, and you've gone all the way to Wednesday with no sleep. Um, I was running back and forth to the surf zone, and our class officer was Dean Valentine. We're running back and forth. I remember running into him. We were running back and forth to the surf. So you're in this demo pit. You're in this one bit. You have to run about 200 yards to go get in the surf zone in the middle of the night. It's freezing cold, miserable. You're all chafed up. 
like it's, you're just miserable. And, and I remember passing Dean and I grabbed him real quick and I gave him a hug. And, uh, and then I moved on and I kept moving on. And, uh, and by the way, that was for selfish reasons. And sometimes you just need a hug. And so when, when stuff sucks, either figure someone's going to give you a hug or find some really good humor. And I found that in the SEAL community, like best humor ever. Um, and sometimes when you need a hug, you got to go get it for yourself. And for me, and by the way, I don't think I've ever, I think I may have talked to Dean about that once, but for me, I wasn't going to quit, but man, it gave me a ton of energy. Just, just, there was a brother who was going through this, me game hug. He was going back to the demo pit. I was going to the surf zone. I got wet and came back to the demo pit, but it's just those little things that you have to keep yourself grounded. You can't do it on your own. You just can't. And that's about having a team around you. It's about having family support and having the right people. And, and the people that aren't right, you've got to figure out how to shed them. But the reason why my current company is because um, I saw a group of people that were really, really overachievers. Like they were off the charts brilliant. And they're solving problems that no one else can solve. And so I've, I've talked to some really big companies about what we're doing. And I realized, oh, my gosh, my tech team is better than their tech team. We're solving problems. And it's what we're solving is we're doing indoor location. Mm-hmm. So um, meaning it's like Google Maps, you know where you are from the X, Y axis, bird's eye view. But in buildings, you have to figure out where you are on the X, Y, Z axis. So we know, like we can, someone, it's called, one of the things is geolocation in buildings or real-time locating services. So we're able to do room-level accuracy, meaning when someone pushes a button or a device is triggered, you know where it happens. And it's not, and it's for fixed assets, but more importantly, it's for mobile assets. So like when a nurse walks into a, walks into a hospital, into a room, and a signal's going off, that signal can stop being triggered. Um, for like in Texas, which was horrible. Like if they'd had our system, they would have known where the teachers were. They would have known where where people were in the rooms. The um, the security guards could have been get, or the the police came on board could have been given a tablet, real time. Never have been on that space real time. They could have seen the layout where everyone was, and then. And so the third use case is hospitality. 50% of uh, housekeepers are harassed. Like so, and they're by themselves, but if they push a button, they're invisible. Well, let's push a button and security can come help them. Like, so this small team of people, and they're all from Qualcomm, leaders in the wireless space, have been able to crack this problem. And our technology is really, really good, really good, Um, and is on par with, with the best of breed. And the best thing is we already know where we need to go in the next four years, where the, where the market's going. And it's a Moore's law issue. So uh, technology, the cost is just too, too expensive for next gen, next two generations of technology. So as the cost come down, we're in 90 days, we're ready to pivot. So literally this team is so good that it's developed today's technology and it's ready with the 90 days shift can shift to the next one when the price points hit the right point. I mean, that's, how good they are with developing their technology. So when you forecast ahead, where do you see location tech going? Where, where are you taking your team? Uh, one year, five years, 10 years, what's the vision? Yeah, I, I, we'll get acquired. Um, Cause we're, we're heavy in tech, really good on tech. We're, we're light on go to market. And quite frankly, that's anyone could do go to market, but our, 
we can solve like we're solving things much better than anyone else in hospitality like mm. by far i look at our competitors and watch what they're doing and they they're giving lip service they're not being honest in what they can deliver um healthcare we are far less expensive than the than the big players um and so the big players are going to snap us up or someone's someone's going to pick us up um because our tech is just too good and you can't and more importantly you can't buy our, buy the team like there's no and this is why i bought the company originally i've never worked on a team before where everyone is better than me at this company everyone is better than me i've never been on a team like that those listening on this podcast tend to come from healthcare and hospitality and, and, and places mm. like that. I mean, where, where can they go to learn more about you or learn about location tech? Because I'm sure someone here is going to be curious to to learn more about what you do. Yeah, probably the easiest way is to go to my LinkedIn profile. Okay. Um, best way, reach out, DM me. That's the one channel I do listen to. So LinkedIn's the best way to find me. Yeah. So as we conclude here, what what's something that you believe, just at the core of who you are, that if everyone else believed it too, would make this world a better place. The world's not as crazy as people think it think it to be. Um, I was with a congressman just last Sunday, um, Naval Academy graduate also, and I, I, I go, "What's the one thing that you've seen in office that people keep asking you?" And he goes, "Everyone asks me, is as crazy as it sounds." And he goes, "The answer is no, it's not. We're Democrats and Republicans. We come together. We, for the most part." We solve things. It's the outliers that are getting the most noise. Believe in the group you're working with and do the best with what you can solve and just keep solving that. That's good advice. I mean, we are, at the end of the day, you know, in a society that's driven by those outlier stories, by the the extraneous variables, if you will, the ones that are easy and fun to, to point out and talk about, because by virtue of them being outliers, they're things that we aren't uh, prone to seeing as normal or average. And so, of course, they get the limelight, but we are more alike than we are different. And uh, we are all just trying to accomplish similar things. And like you say, we none of us show up to fail. We're all trying to win. Jeff, it's been wonderful to have you on and uh, appreciate you sharing your passion for people, your passion for leadership, teams. Uh, your humility shines through uh, despite having done a lot of incredible things in your life, uh, both previously and now. And I'm honored to know you and honored to have you on the podcast. Joel, it's, it's, uh, I appreciate our time together. You've been fantastic. Just thanks. Appreciate it for having me on. Great. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. So for those listening, thank you for being here too. This has been the Frontline Industry Podcast, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Unison. Put your best team everywhere and unleash the magic of a fully empowered workforce. If you're listening to this podcast and thinking, I could never be like these leaders, you're missing the point. Becoming a great leader is a journey. And every journey starts with a single step. And maybe for you, this podcast is that step. And celebrate that. Don't underestimate the power of consistently surrounding yourself with leaders like these highlighted here every Wednesday. And don't miss next week. Subscribe, and I'll see you next time.